I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the risks that AI poses, we have with us Greg Allen, who's the director of our Wadwani Center on Artificial Intelligence. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. So, Greg, it's always great to talk to you, but you know something big happened on May 30th. We had an announcement, a statement, really, by the Center for AI Safety, which is made up of people like Jeffrey Hinton, who's known as the father of AI, Joshua Bengio, who's also one of the fathers of AI, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, the CEO of Google DeepMind, Bill Gates, the CEO of another big AI company, Anthropic. They said, and I quote, Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. That's quite a statement, isn't it? That's quite a statement. And I was in the Department of Defense in the U.S. government as the director of strategy and policy at the Department of Defense. And so what I can say is I'm familiar with this conversation. I have been hearing really since I was a child about, you know, what if we invented AI? Could it lead to an outcome like that in the Terminator movies? Or, or 2001 A Space Odyssey, exactly. where, where Hal, you know, reads lips and takes over. Yes. So the, the risk of AI going evil has been a part of science fiction for many, many decades. But it's really difficult to understate how much this letter has changed the conversation in Washington and in capitals around the world. And I think the right way to think about this moment that we are in is that serious people, right, the CEOs of the leading AI research organizations, the fathers of some of the most important research breakthroughs in AI, serious people take the risk of AI catastrophe seriously. That is what has changed in the past 60 days. We're not talking about you know, people pontificating about the reality of the Terminator movies. We're talking about people who are deeply intertwined with what the state of the art of this technology is, both in research and in commercial adoption. And they're expressing significant concern about the risks, and so are policymakers now in both Congress and the White House. So, Greg, it's pretty extraordinary. It's a one-line statement, but as you're saying, in the last 60 days, it has changed the conversation completely. And that includes at the highest level of our government, President Biden as well, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. So just on Thursday, June 1st, President Biden met with eight leaders in AI technology, and they expressed their concerns to him about, quote, the possibility of AI overtaking human thinking, which is, you know, not necessarily the same extinction risk outlined in that letter, but it is a vague statement that talks about really significant consequences of where we are on AI. I think the other perhaps best illustration of just how much the tone in Washington has changed on this topic actually comes from the White House press room. So in early April, there was a moment in which the White House press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, was asked, you know, about the risk that, you know, quote, AI could lead to everybody on Earth dying, something to that effect. And the room laughed. All the reporters in there laughed. Yeah, the whole Brady room erupted. Exactly. The White House press secretary herself uh, gave a chuckle and said that was quite a question, something like that. Now, fast forward to after this letter comes out, she's asked a very similar question. She's asked about this letter, and she said, 
this is an explicit quote, the government is looking very carefully at this. So this is what I mean when I say serious people take this topic seriously in a way that just wasn't true this time a year ago or really even this time 90 days ago. Greg, along these lines, when people say that AI could mean the end of the human race, why are they saying it? What, is, what do they mean? I think you have to understand just how fast the technological progress is moving in this field and how unexpected some of the research breakthroughs in this field has been. Let me just give you two examples. In the mid-2010s, there was a big AI research milestone around the AlphaGo system, which defeated the world champion at the strategy board game Go. And this had been a goal of the AI research community for literally two decades. A lot of geniuses were working on this problem. Well, a year before that happened, one of the most important AI researchers, uh, Jan LeCun, was asked, he's now currently the head of AI research at Meta, but in the, in the mid-2010s, you know, he was asked, what do you think about the prospects for an AI system defeating you know, a world champion at Go? And he said, oh, that's a decade away at least. It happened the next year. Now, think about uh, what's just happened in the past 24 months with large language models. You've got these really impressive AI systems that can have a genuine conversation with somebody who's you know, prompting these systems. I've had them translate articles that I've written into Hamilton-style musical lyrics, and they're really good. They're clever. They're creative. I mean, just the capabilities of these systems are incredible, but not just incredible, surprisingly uh, so, sure. right? Jeff Hinton, who is another one of these folks who has been at the bleeding edge of AI research for four consecutive decades, and his ideas even now are still really influential in the direction of research in the field, he thought that the progress embodied in these large language models like ChatGPT, he thought that was perhaps a decade away. And here we are right now living in a world where there's this level of capability. So it's just, it's just the pace of research progress is radically exceeding everyone's expectations. Yeah, of course, Hinton, who did so much work about how the human mind thinks and being able to translate that to a machine, has said the reason he's so alarmed now and the reason why he's behind this statement is because he thinks this has happened much, much faster. Exactly. And so he, he, had, he just recently said that he had previously sort of thought that the idea that we could create, create a artificial intelligence, you know, using computers that had something approaching human level intelligence in most or all facets of what it means to have a human level intelligence, he thought that was five decades away. Now he thinks it could come much, much sooner. And keep in mind that in computers... Usually, the performance of computing systems doubles every two years. What does that mean? That means that the modern transistors, the basic technology underlying digital computers, were invented in the 1940s. That means between, you know, 1946 and 2014, we made an astonishing amount of progress. But then from 2014 to 2016, we made the same amount of progress as we had made for those preceding 50 years. And then from 2016 to 2018, we again made the same amount of progress that we made. So exponential growth curves in technological performance 
move really, really fast. So even if you're somebody who's out there and who has played around with ChatGPT and has noticed, oh, these things hallucinate, oh, these things are stupid in all of the following ways, well, when you're dealing with exponential growth in technological performance, being far away in terms of performance from human-level intelligence doesn't mean you're far away in terms of years from human-level intelligence. And Hinton is really getting at the point that if you're talking about computer systems that could have human-level intelligence in the next decade, two decades, whenever, the span of plausible outcomes is really diverse. I mean, just everything where you can tell a logically consistent story, I'm not saying uh, likely, I'm just saying the possible range of outcomes where you can tell a logically consistent story is everything from the most perfect utopia that we've ever dreamed of to the most terrifying apocalypse we've ever dreamed of and everything in between. So this is a really transformational technological change. And he's pointing out that he just doesn't think people are preparing adequately. He doesn't think we're ready for this moment. And that's sort of the impetus behind this letter. You know, and it's interesting because you contrast that to the speed of computing, which has not progressed nearly as fast in a lot of ways as this is progressing. Oh, yes. And this is actually... So first off, the speed of computing has been doubling, right? The computer that I had in high school, we paid like $1,500 for it. You know, it was a big box that sat on a desk. I can now have that computer for $5, It is literally superior in all aspects of computational performance because computers right now are just so much better in raw computational speed. What's really incredible about these AI systems is that whereas computers sort of double in performance every two years or so, this is Moore's Law, which we're we're all familiar with, the actual performance benchmarks of many AI systems, they've been exceeding that pace of progress. We're talking faster pace of progress than even Moore's Law. Right, and that's one of the things that's got everybody thinking about this and really, let's just say it, worried. Bingo. And and you've got major technology executives calling for the regulation of their own industry. That doesn't happen that often. It's a pretty remarkable moment. It is a remarkable moment when a tech CEO comes to Washington and begs for regulation. And that that's what they're getting at. They're basically saying, look, we all are entrepreneurial companies. We all want to be leaders in this technology. Of course, there's a race to have the next breakthrough happen at our company and not their company. And if we want that race to not include a compromise on safety, we're probably going to need some regulation in this equation. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable statement. I think it's kind of an obvious statement. Now, as you've said, Greg, these large language models can do amazing things. And some things we don't even know what it can do yet are really, truly amazing. And in medical research and things like that, they can be absolutely transformative. So we're looking at great technology. You at CSIS, you're putting a laser-like focus on some of the national security implications of this. How do you think about it in terms of national security? So I, as I said before, you know, used to be at the Department of Defense. We in the United States and also militaries around the world view progress in artificial intelligence as foundational to the future of military power, to the future of intelligence and espionage capabilities. And the way that I try to think about it is imagine that it's the year 1946, right? So in World War II, the Brits invented computers. They used them really for one thing, which was to crack German codes. 
And then you're in 1946 and you're trying to think, hmm, how are computers going to affect national security? Well, fast forward eight decades, try and find me any part of U.S. national security that does not involve computers to some greater or lesser extent, right? War plans are drawn up on computers. Missiles have computer chips in them. Airplanes have computers in them. Even bullets were probably designed using computer software to design those bullets. Every single part of national security is to some greater or lesser extent impacted by the invention of computers and the radical progress in computing technology. I think we're going to see the exact same thing with AI. Right now, you've got some really powerful niche capabilities for artificial intelligence around stuff like analysis of satellite photos around stuff like transcribing intercepted communications, you know, converting audio to searchable text databases. There's a lot of really cool applications for AI right now, but that is really applying the AI revolution of the sort of past 10 years. There's been another AI revolution just in the past 24 months around large language models and generative AI. And no military is anywhere close to harnessing the potential of, of what this technology can do and what this technology will become over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. Ultimately, the United States is trying to build super soldiers using AI that are autonomous. What does that mean for national security and where are the potential places where it could really go wrong? I don't, I don't think it's quite right to say that the United States is trying to build super soldiers. I mean, you're, you're immediately conjuring in my head Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, holding like a chain gun. That's not what really we want, per se. But it is definitely true that the U.S. military is trying to incorporate more AI into more types of systems and more autonomy into more types of systems. Right now, I just came from the DOD a year ago. I will say that the DOD has a pretty intense risk posture around all of these things. Go on a nuclear submarine where the United States has not had a reactor accident on a nuclear submarine in like five decades, right? The safety record is as good as anything humanity has ever achieved in any domain. Well, one of the reasons why that safety record is so incredible is that once they have a technology that works, they're incredibly reluctant to change it, right? The phones on those submarines look a lot like the phones from the 1970s because they're like, we know this works. Why would we ever change it? So they have a posture towards technological risk that is really calibrated, I would say, pretty appropriately. If something is involved in safety-critical applications, as in if it goes bad, somebody might die, there's a massive amount of uh, bureaucratic processes, technical reviews, law of war compliance reviews, and it actually is a, a pretty intense risk posture. You know, folks, folks see in the news, oh my gosh, you know, DARPA project is researching X, emphasis on the word research. There's a big difference between what somebody is spending money to think about or to look into and what actually gets deployed in the field. And the United States military's test and evaluation procedures are second to none. And the policy safeguards around the law of war and on autonomous weapons in particular are pretty extraordinary. And so I feel pretty good about the U.S. military's approach to this. I can't really say the same about what's going on in China or what's going on in Russia. And we have to worry about that. 
Absolutely. I mean, China is a reasonably close number two when you think about who actually has the most advanced AI sector in the world. The United States is obviously the leader in these areas like large language models, but in widespread adoption of AI technology, there are some really impressive companies in China. And they're actually really deeply tied into China's national security apparatus, including with their military. So I would not at all state that U.S. technological superiority from the perspective of AI, including the military and intelligence applications of AI, technological leadership is not at all guaranteed. This is something we genuinely have to compete for. Okay, so maybe we don't need to worry about U.S. super soldiers going bananas, and maybe we don't have to worry about Russian or Chinese super soldiers. But going back to the statement from the Center for AI Safety and these industry leaders, they do point out societal scale risks such as pandemic and nuclear war. What are they worried about in terms of nuclear war? What should we be worried about? It's not specifically that they're stating that AI will cause nuclear war. What they're saying is that the importance, the significance of the risk challenge posed by increasingly capable artificial intelligence is in the same ballpark as nuclear war, is in the same ballpark as pandemics, right? Think about how many people in the United States military and intelligence community all day, every day, their job is to prevent nuclear war, right? It's a lot of people, and I've met these people, they're astonishingly smart, hardworking, capable people. We take that risk really, really seriously. What this letter is arguing for is to the United States government, to the governments around the world, you should view AI risk in that same ballpark. These people are obviously pro-AI, right? If you're the CEO of OpenAI, you're trying to make AI happen. If you're the CEO of Google DeepMind, you're trying to make AI research breakthroughs happen every single day. There is a really positive, wonderful outcome that could happen from increasingly capable AI. What these people are arguing, and I think correctly, is that there's also a really bad outcome that could happen here. And if we want the good outcome, we have to work for it. That's not necessarily the sort of natural outcome and you, know, you just don't need to worry about it. This is something we have to work for. This is something governments around the world have to work for. And I think that's exactly right. So you're immersed in AI policy. What are some of the things that we're going to be seeing in the next months and years on AI policy? Well, let me before I say on the policy side, let me just talk about some things that are happening to people I know, right? Sure. Yeah. So we have all experienced phishing emails, right? These are emails where somebody is pretending to be somebody else and saying, oh, click on this link or, oh, send me money because I'm you know, so-and-so who you would reasonably want to send money. We're familiar with that kind of fraud in the text email domain. Well, my brother, one of his colleagues, went on a podcast and recorded you know, an hour long of audio. Well, that hour of audio was used by a scam artist to train an AI model to generate this person's voice. And then this person's mother got a phone call with an AI that was mimicking this person's voice saying, I have been kidnapped. They're going to kill me. You need to transfer a lot of money to this bank account right away or they're going to kill me. And it sounded like her daughter. 
It this sounded, is a real world this example. Is a, this is a real world example from my brother's friend. This happened. This is happening. And then the mother called the daughter's phone number and she was like, what are you talking about? I haven't been kidnapped. But these are AI scams that are happening right now. Symantec, which is a major cybersecurity organization, talked about the exact same thing happening where people are impersonating the voices and phone numbers of CEOs and calling the finance department and saying, hey, we're really late on this payment to a vendor. You need to transfer a million dollars to this bank account right now, right now, right now. And Symantec said, Multiple of their company clients have fallen for these AI-backed fraud schemes. Now, think about that from a national security standpoint, right? Remember when the Associated Press Twitter account was hacked sure. a few, in the Obama administration and when they put up photos of a, a photoshopped you know, attack on the White House and the stock market dropped really significantly? Imagine pairing, you know, one of these AI-forged media disinformation attacks with, you know, a cyber attack taking out a major media outlet. You can imagine some really nasty disinformation campaigns. And if they're timed really appropriately, could influence elections, could influence national security organization behavior, could influence stock markets. I mean, these are challenges that are not entirely unprecedented, right? We're familiar with phishing emails, but AI is bringing this to a level of scale and quality that really is kind of a new challenge. And we're all, you know, trying to think about, regulators are trying to think about, what are we going to do about this and a million other problems that are just as thorny as this one? Right. So back to my question, like, what are we going to do to regulate this? What's our policies going to be? So right now, the European Union AI Act is sort of the most advanced AI regulatory initiative in the, the West and among, you know, U.S. allies. And it's a pretty beefy regulation. The fines of companies who violate this regulation's provisions can be up to 6% of global revenue, not profits, revenue. You know, So those are some really beefy fines for folks who are violating this act. It's principally concerned, at least at this stage, it has sort of a product safety mindset. It's really the, the way the law is written is sort of derived from the, the product safety regulatory tool basket. So think about, you know, somebody sells you food and it's poisoned or somebody sells you a car and it breaks and you get hurt. Think about like that sort of legal paradigm. But it's also focused on, you know, privacy and civil liberties, right? Your data being used in training AI models that then go do things that you didn't necessarily approve. So that's sort of one regulatory architecture that's going on in Europe, and that's pretty far along. I think they're probably going to pass something, certainly this calendar year. Then in the United States, the sort of main thrust right now, I would say, is around applying the existing laws, right, but ensuring that we are actually enforcing them for AI actions. What do I mean by that? If you are making a loan right? It is illegal to discriminate on who gets a loan on the basis of race or ethnicity, right? And that is true whether it's because you have a racist loan agent or you have a racist AI algorithm, right, that is training on data sets that sort of inherently lead it to make biased decisions. Similarly, think about autonomous vehicles, right? Even before somebody wrote a law, you know, saying autonomous vehicles are regulated in the following ways, you know, if on the if in 1992 you'd had a robot autonomous car, it would have been banned, 
right? The existing regulations didn't allow for that. In, in fact, you know, in some cases, you know, the AI regulatory work is actually deregulation. It's basically saying an autonomous car can drive under the following provisions, you know, so long as the following safety technologies are implemented, et cetera. But my point basically being, you know, whether it's finance, whether it's libel, whether it's media and industrial policy, there is an existing regulatory toolbox. We actually had, you know, a pretty senior White House official here at CSIS in May, and they said the sort of immediate priority is what's in our existing regulatory toolbox that we can put to work right now. Then in parallel, you've got what's going on in Congress. So Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has announced uh, a major effort around AI regulation. That was just a, a month or so ago. And I think this is really big work. I think at this point, what I said at the, the top of this show remains true. Serious people are taking this issue seriously in a way that was never true before. Greg, you've given us an awful lot to think about. Thanks so much. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about this many times in weeks to come. I look forward to it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 